Okay. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning into the show today. You know, I highly recommend that you watch today's podcast as we're going to speak with Dr. Lynette Luis, who has a lot of qualifications as a doctor. She has an enormous amount of children. She's a comedian. She's an actress. Please stay tuned because you do not want to miss this. And that you don't always have to keep your brain disorder. That your brain is plastic and that it molds and it changes and it responds. My name's Eric McCoy, and thank you for tuning into the show that promotes highness. And yes, I said highness. Just to remind everyone that this has nothing to do with drugs. It comes from a lot of different ways, and one of them is having the honor to speak with my guest today, Dr. Lynette Luis, or I actually get to call her the Brain Broad. <laughs> now, before I do this, I want to give a shout out to all of those people that are struggling with substance abuse and mental illness. I love you from the bottom of my heart. Even though I may not necessarily know you, your struggles have been very similar to mine. We are brothers and sisters in arms, and our fight together has only just begun. Please check out our podcast and our other episodes at highwallclean.org and please subscribe to our channel. My email, which I will always respond to, is emccoy at highwallclean.org. All right, are you ready? This broad, Dr. Lynette Luis, was born in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. She married at 15 and had two children. She then adopted four children and then two more. Having eight children, she moved to a shelter after separating from her husband. And in 1996, she got an RV and drove around the United States for a year and a half with eight children. Lynette, yes. <laughs> I, want, I, want, I wanted to introduce tragedy plus time, right? That's <laughs> You got it. Leads into comedy. <laughs> hey, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. And I do want to admit I left out a lot to make that sound more insane than it was. Or oh, or, you know, yeah. <laughs> if you'd have told it all, it would have sounded so crazy. <laughs> they just said, well, uh, she needs to get high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess the question is, are you insane? <laughs> you know, that's that's funny because I wrote a one woman show called Crazy to Sane and um Actually, you can buy the CD if you want. <laughs> so I wrote that because, you know, I think, yes, I think there have been times in my life definitely where I was crazy. Crazy is not a diagnosable term. So it's this wide, you know, it's this expansive word that says, I just am not in control of my moments right now, or I'm making choices that nobody agrees with. And they're all looking at me like, oh, God, I have to cross to the other side of the street or, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, sure. I've been insane or crazy. I've um, 
to correct uh, the intro, I actually left home at 15 and uh, married at 18 and already we'd already lived together and had a baby. Like you can't get it right. If there's one thing you can't do is tell someone else's story correctly, even if we write the bio for you. Exactly. So, yeah, I, th I think absolutely. I've, I've been crazy. I do have or did have a condition called Asperger's, which, first of all, doesn't exist anymore. Uh, they now call it high-functioning autism. And uh, secondly, I don't have it now, as in I have learned and changed and my brain has developed away from that condition. And so I'm more versatile mentally than I was when I was younger. And I was abused. So, um you can't really come out of a place like that and not be a little crazy. Yeah. yeah. So you thought you were asking a little question and you got a great big, huge, awesome answer. Well, I want to say that you seem like a very strong woman based on your bio. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and I guess, um, so you are, you have a doctorate in bioscience. Bioscience, but to be honest, I do everything different than it looks on paper. Um, I was actually studying psychophysiology. So that's the, you know, how your psychology and your physiology come together and affect each other and become one thing. And how to intercede in any kind of feedback loops that are becoming negative or causing behaviors you don't want to have. And that's going to help us a lot in this conversation because I really can bring a lot of insight to the world of addiction and, and the need and the crave um, because of that training. It's just when I got to the dissertation, I didn't like what was happening. And so I s looked around and shot my credits and ended up with a doctorate in bioscience. So um, it feels like almost, you know, kind of like I'm kidding because in truth, all of my training that really implements how I proceed and, and the work that I do is in psychophysiology. Now you're, you had two kids and then you adopted four originally. Now, did you, and all four of those were autistic? So I adopted four and I took legal custody of two more. So I had six that I just usually wrap it up and say autistic, but that's, or I'm sorry, adopted. But that's the, the layout. So we ended up with eight. The four boys were multiply handicapped. They, were, um, they all had fetal alcohol syndrome. They all had low IQ retardation, some uneducatively, some educatively retarded. Um, those diagnostic terms have now been massaged a little bit over time. But that's what they called it back then. Uh, Tourette's. Uh, Rad, uh, which is an attach attachment disorder from having been abused and taken away from their family and moved around until I adopted them. So there was all kinds of uh, diagnoses kind of thrown around. At one point, they even thought my one son was a feral child because he'd been locked in a closet for a couple of years. Mm. Um, there's a lot of story here. And if we tried to follow every one of these stories, we'd need many, many years. I mean, I couldn't even, you know, tell it myself. So what we have to do is decide which of the pieces that are relevant to your audience. And I think, you know, the fetal alcohol syndrome is a good place to start. Here are these little guys that because of their appearance addictions are born with sort of an addiction in and of themselves where they they themselves will probably be very susceptible to any kind of alcohol 
or the desire to be high, the desire to write. Um, but also it affected their IQ and it affected their looks and affected it's the high fetal alcohol syndrome is the biggest cause for retardation. So you have these adorable children that were born from parents who were addicts, but also who were um, themselves somewhat challenged, like with learning disabilities and things. And now you've got this huge Heinz 57 kind of number of, of diagnoses thrown at the kids and an abusive start. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot to tell there. Yeah. I had one of the big reasons I was very interested in meeting with you and speaking with you. I recently had um, a client that I worked with who had two autistic children. Um, one of them is hardly functional at all. Um, the other one is more functional, you know, not one of them is not verbal at all. Mm -hmm. And when I was working with her, and of course it was during this COVID time, we were doing Zoom all the time. And so she's at her house. And so I'm watching a lot of this stuff that's going on with, with her kids and not being an expert in autism or really knowing what to do at all. I obviously recommended to her to find an expert that maybe specialized in that. And I guess the question I have is when you're working with autistic children, um, is a lot of it training the parents? Well, when I do it, yes. Um, but I also go directly to the brain of the autistic child and look at their EEG and use a system called neurofeedback to help them change how their EEG is functioning, how their brain is functioning. And that in turn changes the structure of the brain and the neurochemistry of the brain. So it's largely changing how the parents are addressing it. But there's a very strong disorder there that needs physiological help and direction. And so it's all of the above. Um, if though I had to only do one thing, if somebody said to me, well, you can work with the child and you can, you know, do the neurofeedback on the child and everything, but you can't teach the parents or the other way around, I would choose the parents. And I made the mistake of doing it in the wrong order in the beginning. You know, I thought, wow, I have this system. It really helped my kids. I'm going to really make a difference. And, um, when I didn't get the parents involved enough, it just didn't keep happening. Mm -hmm. You know, the change didn't keep happening because there's other experts out there. There's other approaches out there and they're all wanting to jump in and have their two cents. And it's sort of like shopping religion. You'll end up with a whole lot of gods and all kinds of confusion, right? <laughs> well, it's similar. You end up with all these experts with all these varying opinions and and you just don't know how to act. And a lot of the parents end up unable to even take action, mm -hmm. just sort of overwhelmed by it. So helping the parents is usually the most important piece. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the opposite of what's normally done. Normally what's done is professionals come in and they work with your child. And the longer that other people are working with your child and telling you about your child, and you're not the one working with your child, playing with your child, being with your child, the bigger the gap comes for you to understand your child and to feel confident with your child and feel capable and for them to listen to you. And so 
as the years go, you become less and less able to parent your child, not more and more able. And then there's this idea that circulates in their head uh, that, well, um, once they're normal or once they can do all these things, then they'll listen. That, please, neurotypical kids don't work that way. Why would they? <laughs> right? yeah. So it's a lot of lost time. So, yeah, you do want the experts. But more than that, you want comfortable, loving parents that are always teaching the child the next thing to learn. There's nothing more complicated than that, really. It's made complicated, but it isn't. So if you have a child who's nonverbal and hitting himself, the next thing to learn is probably how to express and not hit himself. Um, maybe he's hitting himself because he can't stand it when the radio's on and doesn't know how to tell you that. And if you can help him with pictures or with pointing or with large gestures or with sign language or with writing, then, you know, they can facilitate it to type. Many of these children are very able if you give them the right support. If you as a parent just go, well, I just need to help him communicate this, whatever it is that's bothering him when he goes in the living room. That's all I need. I don't need more. I need that. And then you go after that. And, you know, the next step always shows up. And you're not overwhelmed then. Now, when you say neurophysiology, like changing the brain, is that, I mean, are you talking about similar to like neuroplasticity? Well, okay, your brain's always changing, right? That's what neuroplasticity is about. So it's never not changing. It's getting better or getting worse. <laughs> Right, <laughs> it's so growing or shrinking. All on drugs, we're obviously making it worse. <laughs> yeah, um, they're probably compensating in some area of the brain that might be improving, but overall, yeah, they're messing with their neuro circuits and and making you know all kinds of problems. When you're trying to help someone who has a problem with function, and you look at their EEG, this is how I work with it. There's many methods. This is the therapy I like the best. You look at their electroencephalogram. So that's the brainwave activity that's going on. And you see the dysregulation. And then you type into your little computer, you know, what you want them to change. And you only ask for the next step. You're not asking them to go from, you know, way out of balance to normal. Mm -hmm. I would freak them out anyway. Um, and then they just sit, much like I have this headset on to talk to you. They might have a headset or a couple sensors on that are showing the EEG. And they just look at the screen, much like I'm looking at you, and watch uh, a feedback system or a video game or a movie that slows and stops when you're not operating in the direction of change that we want to see you grow. And that then plays the, your favorite movie again when it is operating in the direction of change we want to see you grow. So that sounds really difficult and really complex, but let me make it super simple. When you have a little baby and they're reaching for their bottle and they touch the bottle, they get the feedback of, oh, I got it. I'm, and their neurons go, we got it. And they make a little recipe, right? And they say, yeah, fire like that. And you're going to move that arm just right. And you're going to get it. Now, how do we grab the darn thing? And 
it's really the same process. We're giving this information that you ne- that nature gives you, that life gives you, that parents give you when they say yes or no to you, when they go hmm or ha, right? They're giving you these these messages. And your brain is looking at the pattern and saying, oh, I like that happy smile. Oh, I don't so much like it when she looks at me like that. Um, and, and that's how you're affecting each person all the time and yourself. And so we are, our, our neuroplasticity is just us living, breathing, changing, growing because of the things that are happening and the thoughts that we're having and the way that we're interacting. And I am able with the, you know, with the neurofeedback system to guide that, to guide that change. Now, so I teach at a school uh, for people working to become substance abuse counselors. And we talk about a lot of this stuff, you know, like physiological effects, you know, related to obviously drugs and alcohol. We talk about neuroplasticity and, and the, you know, changes that occur when we do use drugs, the old brain, the new brain, how, you know, anytime that we put something in our body from outside, our body changes to adapt to Mm -hmm. whatever it is. We go from, you know, homeostasis to that new state of allostasis, um, that new norm that we've ultimately created. Um, And then with the, you know, as a result of the neuroplasticity, obviously when people stop using drugs, they go through withdrawal symptoms as -hmm. their body and brain is working to reverse and go back right. to functioning as well as it can with whatever right. you have left. <laughs> what, are, what would be some recommendations that you have for helping that process? I mean, we talk about the acute withdrawal, then you got the post-acute withdrawal, you know, which are potentially long-term uh, symptoms that people have in terms of things that they can do to improve their brain, maybe speed up the process. Okay. So, I really love the arousal model, and I'm going to share a little piece of that, wet your appetite a little, um, because once you grok even just a piece of that, you can help yourself on your own. You can come up with your own answers, and that's probably more useful than me saying A and B, and then it doesn't fit you, right? Um, let's roll this tape back a little bit. When you said, you know, that you start out with homeostasis and then you add the drug, I would argue that you don't. That I do not believe there's really more than a 0.0000009% of the people that started with homeostasis and end up addicted. If you're a balanced individual and you're comfortable in your own skin and you have a great um, outlook on life and someone brings drugs to you, unless something really weird happens, some really unusual circumstance, you'll probably say no. But let's say you do it or let's say they do it to you. Um, You then would go, I left homeostasis. I was in this balanced, comfortable place. I got super excited. Let's pretend it was uh, cocaine. I got super excited and super driven and I wrote three screenplays. It was awesome. Maybe I should do it again. And then, but then it only lasted, you know, this short period of time. And then I started wishing I wanted to have more. And I don't like this craving feeling. And I'm usually happy. I don't want to do that again. 
And that's generally how it would go. Yeah. Like really high percentage. The person who becomes addicted is usually out of balance in the first place. They're self-medicating. Something's wrong. The reason they reach for that in the first place is because something's wrong. Now, it may have been life, you know, maybe they were abused. And so now they have too many delta waves weighing them down because their brain has done that to cushion them from the trauma and they've had shock and it's affected their parietal lobe development. They've got all this stuff going on. That, that could have been life that did that. And, but regardless, you now have, whether it started as a psychology or a physiology, it becomes one thing. And so now you have a state of imbalance that you're trying to correct for. Let's say it was physiological, uh, like my children that were born with fetal alcohol syndrome, and they just want to be able to process fact faster so they can think quicker, so they don't have to be the dumb guy all the time. That's a state of imbalance, or that's a state of imbalance in comparison to the rest of their peers. Regardless, there's something wrong and they're reaching to help themselves. This is an important first understanding. Too many people feel, and you change your memories when you look back, because now you're in the mess of addiction. And, mm -hmm. you, you know, when you look back, you're looking back with a messed up brain that's addicted and, <laughs> and craving and all these things or on, on something. And so you don't really remember properly. And you may think you used to be perfect, but you weren't probably very perfect at all. You were I, probably, was, I was perfect before. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you're probably looking to help yourself. And even if it was I was just trying to fit in with everybody and I got in there with the wrong crowd, why'd you need to fit in so bad? If you were so comfortable and balanced, you didn't need that. You kind of went, ooh, wrong crowd. Uh, I think I'll go over here with the right crowd. Um, so take the guilt off, stop thinking, wow, you know, this is my fault. A lot of people end up addicted because a prescriber gave them the drugs and it was pain medication. And obviously there was a problem. That's why they went for the pain medication. So let's take the guilt off and let's say, okay, how, whatever was wrong, I've now changed that story so much that I have to find balance or homeostasis, which is the fancy word for it. I have to find balance from where I am now, from who I am now. I can't think in terms of I'm going to roll back the tape all the way to who I used to be and get to be that person, find that core problem and fix it and then be balanced because you're not ever going to be that again. You can't step in the same river twice and you can't have the same brain twice. It's now a different brain. Um, who you are stays the same. Your personality type, your drivers, your motivators that are deep, deep, deep rooted. But the rest has changed. So now you go, okay, I'm going to take the guilt off right now. I'm going to listen to that weird lady that I saw on that show. And I'm going to decide I was already out of balance. And I was just trying to help myself. And this is the way that came along in my life. This is how I discovered helping myself. And, I, and then since I didn't know how to dose... I got too high up and then I had to go way down and then I started swinging back and forth and then I had to try to fix that and I don't know who I am anymore. Okay, but it wasn't initially my fault. Good. All right. So we got rid of that. 
because you listened to me so carefully. <laughs> now, um, there's a little, a little trick. No matter what step you're at in life, is if you just say, I want to take the high road. And, I, and I'm using, I have different ways of saying this, but since this is called <laughs> High Well Clean, this is a good one to use. So the high road's going to be a different road every time, right? With every choice. But it, you'll always at least have two options. And if you just say, okay, which one's the high road? And you don't mean using, right? So is the high road leaving before I hit her? Is the high road uh, reading this book instead of playing another video game? Is the high road, whatever it is, just ask yourself, okay, I'm going to take the high road. Now, the high road is more empty than the low road. Since it's more empty, it's less stressful. There are less people choosing the high road. So you just got rid of a little bit of your stress because you knew what question to ask yourself and you knew how to find the answer. Go for the high road. And you got rid of a little more stress because fewer people are making that choice. And so you're going to have less overwhelm. Remember, we we're talking about autism. And I said, you know, the parents, they just get sort of overwhelmed and they can't take any action from all the experts. We have that everywhere, right? We don't, we have it in politics. We have it in schools. We have it in, at work. We have it with our families where we just go, I don't know, we go to the department store. I can't pick a pair of pants. It's overwhelm. So if you know what question to ask, and you just go, okay, what's the high road right now? Not buying it because I'm a shopaholic. Okay, I'm going to step away. Whatever it is. And then you realize, okay, there's fewer people grabbing at me trying to keep me in their club. So when you're an addict, there's all kinds of people want to keep you in their club, right? They can't stand to see you get better because then they have to see themselves not get better or be challenged to maybe have to take the high road and they're not ready to take the high road. I don't want to take the high road, right? So they don't want to see you get better. So you're going to say, I'm going to take the high road and you're going to turn your eyes to that, that answer and you're going to go there. And if you made a mistake and you didn't go there and then you ask yourself, oh, why did I use again? Blah, 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 blah. I want you to take the high road then and let go. Okay. Okay. So I did. Now I have that experience and I know it really sucked. I was getting so far. Okay, what's the high road today? The high road today is to not beat myself up so much that I feel miserable and I have to use again. Hmm. Right? So take the high road, take the high road, take the high road. With every little step, remember I said with autism, just help your child with the next step. Life's just another step. So whether it's addiction, no matter what it is, just the next step. And the next step before you know it, you've gone a long distance. And the people that don't want you to get better are way back there. And you've got a different crowd of people that are more supportive. But it begins with you. So these are sort of psychological things that affect your physiology that you can help yourself with. There's some other stuff, too, that are pitfalls. And then I want to tell you a story that will really help bring this together. Um, there's a real pitfall in calling yourself an addict for the rest of your life. Even though you know you can't use it, use, um, giving yourself a name or a label that you believe you have to have prevents you from getting the final distance. And
and believing that you are powerless and that you need God. I'm sorry, AA, I love a lot about you, but there's this one thing we're going to talk about, that you need God to have the power over you. That's fantastic for a while. Just like calling yourself an addict is fantastic for a while. But there's a point that you'll reach when you ask yourself what the high road is. And the answer will be, I'm not an addict. I just don't use. I am the strong one. I can help myself. Okay, I got to say something. You are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I say this, I, I really say this wholeheartedly because I bring this up all the time that when we label ourselves, we limit ourselves. And when I, when I talk about these things, especially with the big 12-step guru type people, um, you know, I was heavily involved in the 12 steps. I, there's a lot of issues that I find with the 12-step program personally, just for me. Um, and uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. You know, if I continue to tell myself I'm an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict, I'm an addict. Right. Well, what do alcoholics do? What do addicts do? They drink and use. And right. so I, I love that you said this, that Good. that is, uh, we, we are completely in line with that. Uh, that's fantastic. Thank you. And, and you need it at the beginning, because if you don't own it, right? If you don't say, oh, I thought I was self-medicating, but it turned out I'm an addict. If you don't own it, you can't push away from it. Sometimes I use the analogy of a person that jumps in the pool and they're swimming the lane. And the wall at the end is the moment when you say, okay, I'm an addict. I own it. And if I want to get to the other side, I got to push away from it mm -hmm. and swim to the other end. So you need to own it and you're weak in that moment and you need the support and you need the, because you're weak. Now, some people hit the bottom and they're strong right away. They get clarity. It brings them clarity and they don't need that. But let's say you do. So you go, you say, I'm an addict, you know, and I, I give it up. I give my power away. Someone else has to help me. That's fine. Use the support system. But if you stay there, it's like the person that says life is hard and then you die. Life's always going to be hard then, mm -hmm. right? If you believe that you can't do it yourself then how could you do it yourself it doesn't make sense you'll always trip up the power of so, the mind. yeah yeah power of the mind well the mind's all, the mind got you there <laughs> you had a problem <laughs> you came up with an idea called whatever alcohol cocaine whatever math whatever right um, or your pocketbook got in on it too. You know, I want the cocaine, but I can afford the math and right, <laughs> um, and the group you're with, and and opportunity. But but wherever, whatever you're in, um, you're you're at a place at some point in your healing where you want to say, I'm not anymore. I used to smoke cigarettes, and I was a two pack a dayer, and then I was quitting smoking. Then I quit smoking, and then I was a non-smoker. And, you know, I'm a non-smoker. I used to be a smoker, but I'm not anymore. And you don't have to be an addict your whole life, right? Um, it's really important to let go so that you can live a full life and find your balance. 
And at that point, you might go, okay, so how do I handle all this pain? How do I do? So here I am. I've, I've cleaned up. I've gone through the, my brain down-regulated for the drug, and then it didn't have enough. So then I craved, and I went through withdrawal and up-regulated again. I did all that, but I started out with a problem, and I still have problems. It's not like I went through withdrawal. Oh, I have great grandkids. No, I'm still working. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and that's life. Um, so I, you go through this and you've gone through this whole thing and you get to this place where you're like, yeah, okay. But now what? Everyone tells me to meditate, but when I meditate, I feel more depressed. Everyone tells me I'm going to go with, I need an example here so that I can give you a line of choices. So I'm going to go with someone who is on depressed, who is a very depressed person and got some relief from pot ends up using cocaine, super enjoys cocaine, starts, you know, mainlining cocaine is very, very addicted, really messed themselves up and has now walked backwards. Um, and pot just makes them sleep. So they were using the pot, it kind of helped, but then it actually made it worse. So then they moved to something hard and heavy and really brightening. Their initial problem was that they were depressed, that they were feeling dragged down, like in the spaces of life, whenever I take a minute, to even just go to the bathroom. If I'm not reading the person's shampoo bottles or something, my brain wants to have me kill myself. I'm so low. So I have to stay activated all the time or I just want to die. Okay, we're talking about this heavy, heavy depression. I need something to help me. Well, you might have gone to a doctor, you might have gone to street drugs, whatever, but in this scenario, you ended up on cocaine. So when you fix yourself, as far as your addiction goes, you still have this brain that had a problem with depression, but it's even worse now. So your, your fix made it worse when you pull your drug away. So now that's what I meant by you can't go back to where you started from. So now you really got an issue. And if you try meditation and deep breathing and, um, you know, and you're, you're drinking lemon juice and throwing ginger in it and some pepper to try to activate and you're reading online and you're going, what do I do? What do I do? I'm just so depressed. Well, think arousal. That's what got you in this mess in the first place. So depression is low. I'm low, I'm heavy, I'm sad, like grief, like a pit. Um, anxiety, someone who's got too much anxiety, that's high. I'm anxious, I'm moving fast, I'm thinking too quickly, I'm, everything makes me edgy, my heart's going like nuts. So that's high. So this is arousal, okay? We're not talking about sexual arousal, that's the sexual addicts arena and I'm not going to get into it right now. So <laughs> you've got, uh, that was supposed to be a joke, but I'm bumping. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so you've got anxiety, you've got depression. This is how this is going to pattern out. If you're anxious and you start doing deep breathing from your stomach and you focus, maybe there's a thing called the open focus brain where you try to focus on this spot between your eyes or you look up at the mountains, or you just, you know, look for Nirvana, and you clear your head, and you push those thoughts away, and you keep pushing them away, and then you do some self-hypnosis. You'll help yourself a lot. But if you were the depressed person, you might get worse. 
So you might find yourself sitting there going, well, I'm okay in that moment, just like when you were going pee and reading the shampoo bottles in the person's bathroom to keep your mind activated. When I stay focused, when I, when I make myself think, when I, when I listen to my breathing, when I do all this stuff, I'm okay in that moment. But the minute I let go, I feel even worse. It's because those things increase alpha and theta waves, which are low frequency waves. And you're already bathed into much low frequency wave behavior. So you're dis disconnecting from the high beta stuff you were reaching for as an addict. Life has that stuff in it. But so go for that. Go for the high beta stuff. Turn the rock music on so high and so loud that you can't help but dance and scream and sing it out and make yourself crazy with fun and excitement because excitement is like anxiety. It's high frequency. A lot of the times these people that have this depression now end up being, you know, rock climbers or cliff jumping. Don't go so high, even in this natural cure, that you die. <laughs> Adrenaline junkie is sort of using your internal self to self-medicate, right? To go, I'm kind of this low person, so I'm using adrenaline to offset that. Look at your patterns. Think about this sort of balance. And you'll be able to say, wait a minute, that's why that doesn't work for me. It's not that I'm such a loser. I'm not so broken that even though meditation works for everybody, it doesn't work for me because I'm so broken. No, it doesn't fit you. You know, one person likes deep massage. Another person says, stop touching me. You're who you are. You're out of balance. And you want to offset that a little. And once you offset it, you have choices. You can offset it big like you did with the cocaine, right? And end up an adrenaline junkie. Or you can offset it just enough to get yourself out of the depression and maybe in a little boredom. Okay? And then with a little more next time, you'll get a little bit out of that and a little bit out of that. This is a, this is a journey you got to walk. If you do use the adrenaline, okay, but don't make it a habit. Yeah, okay, that adrenaline really worked. That music was great. That'll get your adrenaline going without you dying. That's fun. So go for fun. Go for liveliness. Mm -hmm. And if you're the anxiety person, you can go for that too. But you're better off in the healing of things, in the trying to be, reach homeostasis, to go for that, that slower, more meditative thing. Unless you're so anxious, you got to blow it out. Well, and that's, you know, high, high wall clean, that's what we call this, you know, is, is, you know, so many people that go into rehab, they're just like, oh, life's going to suck. Life's going to be boring. If I stop using, everything's going to be horrible, you know? And, you know, this high wall clean concept is that I can, I can get high doing anything, right? You know, I get high, you and I having this conversation, I get high, you know, I'm doing remodeling in my house and I just find this pleasure and enjoyment, you know, behind doing those types of things. Yes, I, I was an adrenaline junkie um, for, I was a meth addict was my drug of choice. With that way up scenario. I do got to ask. Up to your teeth. Oh no, that would be crack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, meth, meth it does too, but yeah. I do got to ask a question. And this is, this would be a question that some people would ask um, based on this conversation. 
So you had mentioned, you brought up that, you know, um, you can no longer be an addict, right? Now, the, the people that are going to be some people in recovery may take that concept and say, great, now I can drink. You know, I was a crack addict or I was a meth addict or I was a heroin addict, you know, and a lot of us, and, and again, this is just for me and I speak for myself, I opt to not use anything that gives me that rush of euphoria because I like it, you know, um, and that's when I, and, and so if I like it, I want to do a lot and it gets out of control, you know, for me. Um, now, what would you say to the people though, with that idea that like, okay, I was a heroin addict. Um, and if I, decided and made that decision and changed the fact that I am not an addict, could I go out and drink? Well, you wouldn't want to. So the thing is that you're, you know, your craving and your desire to bottom out or to get that high changes when you are in balance. You're going to make this statement when you're actually not an addict. It's not an excuse statement. I'm not telling you, oh, Lynette said I can say I'm not an addict and then I can go ahead and behave like that. No, because, because some people will. <laughs> right. But the very fact that you desire to use it that way is telling you that you're still an addict. Right. So the minute that you want to do something so you can cheat the system, that's what you want to look at. Why do I want to cheat the system? And that would be because way out of balance. Right. That's, that's where you're going to get the closest to what's up with me. What makes me want to cheat? Oh, I'm still, I'm still avoiding conflict. That's what it is. Right. So how do I fix that? How do I take the high road, the really high road, not the high road, right? right? How do I take the high road when I'm avoiding conflict? It's making me want to say I'm not an addict, so I have an excuse to go get drunk. Hmm. <laughs> I guess I'm going to have to walk back in that room and deal with that person. That's the high road. So you deal with that person. You deal with that conflict. You feel a little, whoa, I can't believe I did that afterwards, right? I'm going to assume that you kept following the advice and while dealing with it, kept taking the high road so you didn't make it ugly. And you come out of there, you'll be high. You won't need to go drink. You'll be high. You'll be proud. You'll be happy. You'll feel comfortable with yourself. And you will be able to say, I guess right now I'm not an addict because I know how to take the high road. So it all comes together. You have to work with it together. It's not an excuse phrase. It's an actual possibility for you. It's an actual possibility. That's all. Can I tell you my story? Or do you have yes. a question burning in your brain? I, I would love to hear your story. So it includes neurofeedback, which is what I was telling you about. So this sort of, sort of solidifies the idea of this arousal system concept. So I uh, get this call that is a billionaire and I'm going to go hide in his place and help him get off of crack and, um, and meth. He's, he's both. 
and uh, they've got him sort of locked up in there and the FBI is all around. It's very exciting, right? <laughs> and I, right? So I go there, I'm snuck in and I'm going to stay there and, and be there for six weeks. And um, that's sort of uh, how I do it. Anyway, so I'm going to live there. I'm going to sleep on the floor. I'm going to not let him escape. <laughs> I'm going to do all that. So I went in there and it was the first time I dealt with this type of addiction. And I was early into dealing with addiction. I just knew enough from all the other things I did to know I'll need about this much time. I'll need, and from the other experiences that I'd had with people as well in an outpatient situation, I knew that I wanted to be with them the whole time because it's more effective. But I hadn't really worked with this drug. And so, and I was talking to him and I'm like, what's your favorite? And he loved cocaine and he loved crack and he loved meth. So I thought, okay, um, which one's your favorite? Of all of those, which one's your favorite? Well, cocaine. Okay. But it's easier to go to hang out with all those people doing meth nowadays because it's not 70s anymore. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so <laughs> um, I thought about the arousal system and what cocaine does. It increases the, your ability to absorb dopamine. And I thought about where the dopamine pathways are and assumed that he probably didn't have enough. It, his brain probably wasn't giving him enough of that dopamine. Definitely not by now because it would have downregulated, but maybe even initially. So how about if I just give him a, a dose of his very own brain's cocaine, right? Teach his brain to give him more dopamine. Now, dopamine is super rewarding. It makes your reward system light up like crazy. It makes you motivated. So when you're addicted to something like that, you're motivated for your addiction as well. Like it really grabs a hold of you. Um, so I just put this. Now, this wasn't how it was done. This, everybody else was using these same systems to try to bring it to balance. And I thought, wait a minute. He's trying to bring himself to balance because he needs this. Let's get him this then we can see how far out of balance everywhere else, else is. And he literally didn't withdraw. He didn't crave. He didn't, and now, by the way, he's a big producer and has been for a long time, put out lots of great movies, and you can got me to thank. <laughs> so that was the best learning for me because I took the freedom to take the system I know about the brain, the things I know about the brain, the things I know about addiction, the opportunity I had with this person who could afford to have me there the whole time. And just every time he started to crave, just stick the sensor back on his head and tell his brain to do it for him. And it was amazing and has changed then how I work with everyone. Now, you don't necessarily have neurofeedback in your home or even easy access to it, but the lesson's the same. It means that whatever it is that you are addicted to, you want some element of that, and you can find that in your life. So that's it. That's the story that I wanted. I thought it would kind of solidify the concept of, you know, this, if I'm low, go high. If I'm high, go low and you're aiming for the middle. The reward deficiency, you know, which is kind of what you're talking about with the dopamine and stuff. And, you know, I, I know when I was, when I was young, um, everything in life was just blah, you know, I never found excitement in anything. Um, I never felt like I could connect with people. Um, I never felt like anybody understood me. 
um, you know, I felt completely separated, you know, just from me and my family, my family also. Um, and I had a great family. I mean, I didn't have an abuse, you know, or any, any of that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, and for me, it was, I, I just remember smoking my first cigarette and getting that head rush. And I was like, oh, I love this, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I had, and I, then I tried alcohol, you know? Um, drank so much. I got horribly sick the first time I drank, you know, then I tried weed and everything was like, wow, this is really cool. I like this. I like this feeling differently, you know, something Mm -hmm. different and meth. Then I hit meth and that was, you know, I mean, I felt on top of the world, the pleasure, the the focus, the concentration, you know, everything was just brighter and livelier and more colorful, you know, in life. Right. And, um, and I, and so I agree with you a lot when you were saying that too, about the, the homeostasis, kind of what I meant too, by that was, was whatever that norm is for you, you mm-hmm. know, everybody's obviously got, you know, that's why I, you know, when I was working with this female, even with her kids and you were talking about labels, um, she always referred to her kids, autistic, my autistic kids, my autistic kids, my autistic. And I even said that to her too. Right. I go, I go, why do you, why is that how you define them? You know, why it, it, that's like what always came out of her mouth was, was, you know, and I know with her and I, I do believe that a lot of her drinking um, came about as a result of having no idea how to deal with this, with their kids. You know, you know, the problem with things like autism, no, there's many problems, but um, certainly one that you will see everybody grapple with is the concept that there's the right way to do it. In fact, that's that's true of all this stuff. You know, just this concept that there's a one size fits all. There's a right way to be healthy. There's a right way to to raise autistic kids. There's a right way. And there isn't. Right. So the idea that there's a right way and there you are a parent and suddenly have children with anything, fetal alcohol syndrome, triple palsy, spina bifida, autism. If you didn't grow up with your parents raising an autistic person, you don't have any idea of what you're supposed to do because your training ground is your childhood. And so you went to school in childhood and they forgot to give you that course. Right. So here you are with this child and you feel completely, it would be like if I took, you know, some accountant and threw him on stage and said, sing. He's like, I don't. uh, uh." (laughs) So they get overwhelmed and they fall apart and they look for help. And, um, but if, if it's just my child and my child is having a hard time when eating food, and that's different. So the label does create this whole sort of give up that because you think there's a right way to do it, but it's also useful because without the label, you don't know what an expert to reach for. You don't know what book to read to get your education. You don't know. So like what we were saying with the addiction, there's, there's this embrace it, own it, right? Your child's autistic. And a lot of times the parents just get stuck there. They think that's how you embrace and own it and love them anyway, because, okay, they're autistic. They'll be autistic forever. They'll be addicts forever. Everybody's forever. (laughs) And, and, you know, they just do it by constantly saying, 
you know, my son, the addict, my son, the autistic person, my son, right? And it doesn't have to be that way. It just doesn't. So I got to ask you, driving around the United States with eight children, how the hell was that? <laughs> it was fantastic. That, yeah, there were nine of us. Um, so when I drove with eight children, I was actually in a, a van performing in prisons. Ha ha, you didn't know about that one. Uh, and oh. then... <laughs> But when I was traveling in the RV, I was with grandchildren and children. So, but there's still, for some reason, were eight in there plus me. So I seem to have this affinity for this number. Um, I'm going to just sort of hit on. It was great, by the way. It's one of my favorite memories, uh, that and the prison tour. I love putting the kids in these uh, vehicles that I know where everybody is and <laughs> they can't spread out too far. <laughs> right it's safety um now the rv thing was brilliant of me and it's a great example again of how you help yourself by looking at the circumstance looking at the problem and letting your mind free to find an answer so these four multi-handicapped autistic fetal alcohol syndrome tourette's all this other stuff these four kids um, were really struggling. School hadn't helped them. I couldn't figure out how to find the right school. I was sick of moving and trying to find the right situation. I was at a meeting, and it's called an IEP here. And um, that's when all the, they're all sitting around talking about your child, right? And when they're old enough, they get to sit there too and listen to everyone hate them. And so my son's sitting there with me, just one, because you're doing one at a time. Uh, and they're talking about him, and I can tell they don't like him. And I just went, oh, wait a minute. Does anybody here like my son? And they all looked away. Oh, wow. And I said, well, Chance, I guess we're leaving. And then I turned around and said, how do you homeschool in this state? And they said, you just tell us you're homeschooling. At that time, that was it. It was Texas, by the way. And so I said, I'm homeschooling. Let's go, guys. And I went and got everybody out of their classrooms. I'm like, well, I don't know how I'm going to do this. So um, got rid of everything, bought an RV, all kinds of tricks to get to that. But we have to skip over it. So, so I got the RV. And the reason being, my children had autism. Never mind the other stuff they had. They had autism. It's a social disorder. Going to school where everybody bullies you, where they put you into classrooms where you're supposed to be with other autistic people who don't like each other, where they make you sit in a you know on a chair with your feet on the floor and your hands on the table, builds frustration. It makes you want to hit, and then they then they have to discipline you for all that. And I, it just it never made sense. And I couldn't find the people that would think with me on it. I kept trying new places and I think, and I thought, well, let me think with me. And it's a social problem. So let's put them in holiday environments where everybody is in a good mood. And if they don't like my kids, we drive somewhere else until we find another resort where they're in a good mood. And Let's just keep doing that while I teach you the basics of map re reading and uh, bank account and paying for things and the stuff you need to know, not the stupid things you're learning at school. Well, I want to thank you for, for coming on this show. I want to give you an opportunity real quick and I ask everybody, is there anything we didn't touch on that you'd like to mention? 
if you know anybody that has autism and and you want to share my teaching and my style with them, I have a show called Fix It in Five that I do where I take cameras with me to work. So um, there's uh, Uganda has five episodes, and that's a woman in Uganda with her her child. So it's a single woman and and her child. And then I have uh, five episodes for an American family, and we're about to post the Israel family. I'm going to do two more families. Um, it's a really good show for a family who's trying to understand what to do, what's the point, how to help. I do do neurofeedback in it, but I also teach a lot about play and how to respond in a way that's useful. Um, I think it's really worth your time. And you can see it. I put it up on YouTube, actually, just recently so that people in this pandemic would have access to it. Before that, it was only on the Autism Channel. So it's on the Autism Channel. Um, it's on Vimeo and it's on YouTube. And if you go to my website, you can find anything. And your website again was? LynetteLouise.com or BrainBody.net is more the ADHD, autism, that kind of stuff. Uh, but you can get there. You can go to LynetteLouise.com, see all that stuff, and click over to BrainBody, too. So, I mean, it's just, it's all pretty connected. And if you forget, just go Google Brain Broad. You'll find me. <laughs> Brain Broad. I love it. <laughs> I want to thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of High Wall Clean. I look forward to seeing you soon. <laughs>